0: A quadruple homicide that went unsolved for 13 years. Three more people murdered in cold blood, and an eighth victim held captive, chained to a wall for two months. This is Method and Madness, Episode 2, Serial Killer Todd Kohlhepp, Part 1. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Hearing the term serial killer can conjure up many different images. Who's the first one you think of? A manipulative con man, Ted Bundy. A performer for children, killer clown John Wayne Gacy. An alcoholic, loner, and cannibal, Jeffrey Dahmer. There's no simple formula for defining a serial killer. What they look like, how one becomes a serial killer, where or how they live, or how to hunt one down. What drives them to kill, what makes them tick, their M.O., They can be highly educated like Bundy and outcast like Dahmer, or, like the subject of today's episode, a successful businessman with an above-average IQ and a criminal past. In 2003, a quadruple homicide took place in Chesney, South Carolina, leaving a community in shock and family and friends devastated. The case went unsolved for years, and no solid suspects were investigated during that time leaving loved ones desperate for answers. In 2015, a couple went to report to a job and never returned home, prompting family to report them missing. In 2016, another couple left their apartment and vanished without a trace. Eight victims, one connection. Let's dive in. We'll start on November 6th. 2003, in the small South Carolina town of Chesney on a long country road. Census data shows the population of Chesney to be 1,003 people in the year 2000. It lies in the counties of Spartanburg and Cherokee and is described on its city's website as having a hometown feel. On that Thursday afternoon in the rural town, Noel Lee entered the town's bike shop, Superbike Motorsports, on Paris Bridge Road, and found a horrific scene. Four people shot to death, lying in pools of blood. The victims were shop owner, 30-year-old Scott Ponder, Ponder's mother and the shop's bookkeeper, 52-year-old Beverly Guy, service manager, 29-year-old Brian Lucas, and the youngest of the victims, mechanic, Chris Sherbert, 26 years old. Lee, a friend of the shop's employees and a customer, arrived at the scene shortly after the murders occurred and came across the body of Lucas in the doorway of the shop and the body of Ponder nearby in the parking lot. Lee thought they were pulling a prank since they were all friends and Lee's visit had been expected. He quickly realized it was no joke that something truly violent and terrifying had happened here, a place he frequented and thought of as a home away from home. He called 911. Beverly Guy was lying inside the shop near the door to the restroom, and mechanic Chris Sherbert was hunched over in the service area at the back of the shop. Lee reported to the 911 dispatcher as calmly as he could muster. Everybody's been shot up here. Everybody's lying down in a pool of blood. His mama's been shot. The mechanic's been shot. Police arrived at the scene and found 18 shell casings, but no fingerprints or DNA of note. There was no evidence of robbery, no bikes missing, and several thousand dollars were left untouched. This didn't look like a spur-of-the-moment crime or a murder of opportunity, but one that was premeditated. When trying to figure out the sequence of events that day, police thought it was possible that the killer entered the back of the store from the outside, shot Sherbert first, and then moved toward the front of the store, where he found and shot the remaining three victims. On day one, law enforcement got a pretty solid tip. Customer Kelly Sisk and his four-year-old son had visited the bike shop on that afternoon in November, just minutes prior to the murder, and recalled seeing owner Scott Ponder showing a bike to a prospective customer. Sisk noted that the customer was wearing a heavier lined jacket, which he thought was odd considering the warm weather. The average temperature that day was 72 degrees. It also appeared that the customer wasn't a seasoned motorcyclist, as Sisk overheard Ponder recommending a specific bike for a newbie. By the time Sisk and his son left the shop and arrived back at their home, the news of the quadruple homicide at Superbike Motorsports was all over the TV. Had Sisk just narrowly avoided being the fifth victim? He didn't know, but he did know that he had to act fast. He had information. Sisk contacted law enforcement immediately and let them know that he had been at the Superbike Motorsports that afternoon and it must have been minutes before the murders. He gave them a description of the customer that he saw speaking with Scott Ponder. Based on his recollection of the customer, there was a reward flyer made with a composite sketch depicting a white male with dark feathered hair and a middle part. The man was described as being somewhere between 25 and 40 years old, approximately six foot tall, weighing between 175 and 200 pounds. Possible sightings of the suspect's car included that of a 1990s blue Chevy pickup, a small light blue pickup, and a 1990s red Honda Civic, all cars that had been spotted in the area or shop parking lot around the time of the murders. There were suspicions that the murders at the bike shop may have been committed by the same person who had murdered three people approximately 35 miles away at Blue Ridge Savings Bank in Greer, South Carolina just months earlier on the afternoon of Friday, May 16, 2003. A gunman had entered the bank and forced three people into the back where he shot them. The victims were bank teller Sylvia Haltzclaw, age 56, and two customers, James Barnes, age 60, and his 58-year-old wife, Margaret Barnes. That case had not been solved, although there was a composite sketch done of a possible suspect, a man between 50 and 53 years old, approximately 230 pounds, with short blonde hair. The main difference between the bank murders and the bike shop murders was that there was an unspecified amount of money stolen from the bank. Police looked into a log of the bike shop's customers to create a list of possible suspects. The tough part was that the shop had customers all over the U.S. Because this did not seem to be a robbery, the other theory was that this was a targeted killing and that the shooter came to the shop specifically to carry out the murders. Targeted murders indicate that the killer knew his victims, so law enforcement began reaching out to the shop's customers by phone or by sending a letter asking for the recipient to contact law enforcement as soon as possible. Some customers they were able to get a hold of and speak to, some they did not. The customers that they didn't reach were not pursued further. There were also suspicions raised that the murders may have been tied to drugs and that victim Chris Sherbert was scheduled to appear in court the following week, but that theory was quickly dismissed and it didn't look like anything related to drugs was the reason for the murders. Police looked for the man depicted in the composite sketch, but their searches turned up nothing. Then there was a strange twist. Victim Scott Ponder's wife was pregnant at the time of his murder, During an interrogation with police in 2004, Ponder's widow, Melissa, had her baby with her, a boy, Scotty, named after his late father. She changed the baby's diaper at the sheriff's office and unbeknownst to her, law enforcement acting on a hunch had taken the soiled diaper from the garbage to have it tested for DNA. Comparing the DNA results to blood samples at the bike shop crime scene Detectives later informed Melissa that her baby was not her husband, Scott Ponders, and that instead, the baby's DNA matched that of service manager Brian Lucas, whose body had been found not far from Scott Ponders. For the next 18 months, law enforcement focused on Ponders' widow, Melissa, and pressured her to admit that she was having an affair with Brian Lucas, resulting in her pregnancy and that the bike shop murders were possibly tied to a love triangle gone horribly wrong. Melissa emphatically denied these accusations, stating that there was no way her baby was not Scott's unless by some minuscule chance the baby was switched at the hospital. Police asked Melissa over and over if she killed her husband or if she had some role in the planning of it, to which she firmly denied. She had been happily married and excited for the arrival of the baby. Finally, it was realized that an error in labeling the vial of blood taken from the bike shop crime scene was to blame for the love triangle theory. Scott Ponder's blood was incorrectly labeled as Brian Lucas's, and the months wasted on Ponder's widow probably had cost the investigation valuable time. Melissa was later eliminated as a suspect, and the crime would go on to be a mystery for another 12 years. FBI profiler and true crime author John Douglas provided law enforcement with a profile of the gunman, and details of that profile were published in November 2004 by reporter Janet Spencer in the Spartanburg Herald-Journal. Douglas, a well-respected profiler, is known for investigating many notorious serial killers such as the Atlanta Child Murders and the Green River Killer. He's created hundreds of suspect profiles to aid law enforcement in who to look for when hunting down a suspect. Douglas has been a personal inspiration for me an early reason for why I developed a passion for true crime. His ability to study crime scenes, selections of victims, and placement of bodies, and in turn develop a full profile of the suspect is incredible. And his prowess is in understanding how the perpetrator would have acted before, during, and after committing the crime. A lot of this based on how organized or disorganized the crime was. I read his book Mindhunter in the 90s and decided to study criminal justice in college, driven by the psychology and the why behind the violence. That book later became the inspiration for the hit Netflix series, Mindhunter. For the profile of the suspect in the bike shop murders, Douglas suggested that because of the nature of the crime, the placement of the bodies, and the number of shell casings left behind that this was a mission-based crime and that the shooter was most likely a disgruntled customer. Additionally, this was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. The killer had planned the attack and most likely had practiced shooting either at a range or in the woods somewhere, due to his accuracy when shooting all four victims. Douglas also felt confident that the killer had talked to someone about his crime. Family members of the victims made videos imploring the public to reach out if they had any information that would help find the killer. A Facebook group was created years later to keep up awareness of the unsolved murders, and the families worked tirelessly to get the case national news coverage. Photos and stories provided by loved ones depicted four people that were loved, fun to be with, and very, very missed. TV series America's Most Wanted which was credited with contributing to the solving of over 1,200 crimes at the time, featured a segment on the quadruple homicide in 2012. Family members and friends would finally catch a break in 2016, but at the cost of three more lives. On December 22, 2015, married couple Megan and Johnny Coxie were reported missing by Megan's mother. Megan was 25 and Johnny 29, and they had recently been hired for a job on December 19th, but hadn't been heard from since. Police at the time had no reason to suspect foul play, and family members would have to wait another 11 months for tragic answers. Anderson, South Carolina, is a town about 120 miles from Atlanta and is nicknamed the friendliest city in South Carolina. According to U.S. Census information, Anderson had a population of over 26,000 in 2010. On August 21st, 2016, Kayla Brown, age 30, and Charles Carver, age 32, were seen leaving their apartment in the town of Anderson. Carver's mother got worried a few days later when she hadn't heard from her son, who she was used to communicating with regularly. When the couple's apartment manager checked out the situation, he found that Brown and Carver were not home and their dog Romeo was inside with no food or water. This was out of character for the couple. Family members said they wouldn't just up and leave and that Brown's dog was like her baby. She wouldn't have abandoned Romeo or left him without proper care. It was also noted that the couple looked to have left voluntarily, as Carver's white Pontiac was not parked outside, although Brown's car was there. Days went by without texts or phone calls from Brown or Carver going out to any of their friends or family, and Brown's cell phone provider determined that there had been no activity on her phone since that Sunday the 21st when she was last heard from. Law enforcement was unable to ping her cell phone, indicating it had probably been powered off or that the battery had died. A search was conducted by volunteers and loved ones, and posters with three photos of the missing couple were made hung up around the area, and distributed. One photo on the poster appeared to be a selfie of the couple, he with a beard and glasses, her with red hair, both beaming at the camera. Weeks later, and still no signs of the couple, posts started mysteriously appearing on Charles Carver's Facebook page, alarming both his family and his friends. The posts started showing up in early October, over a month after the couple went missing. The posts appeared to be updates from Charles himself, but those who knew him weren't convinced. The posts were mostly informing his friends and family that he and Kayla were expecting a baby and that they had gotten married. Even stranger is that the posts were made to appear that they were from July and August, although they were actually made over a month after the couple had gone missing. The strange activities continued on Carver's Facebook page. Someone clearly had access to his account and began posting memes like, I wonder if I said hello, how many people would say it back? And more chilling memes like, What color ribbon supports the cure for people who can't keep their nose out of other people's business? And one post that prompted outrage by friends of Carver, Sometimes late at night I dig a hole in the backyard to keep the nosy neighbors guessing. One friend replied to this with, Is that what you did to Kayla and the real Charlie? Family members were adamant that the writing style and typos on the perplexing posts did not sound like Carver, who went by Charlie, and that he was a very kind, generous man willing to give anyone the shirt off his back. Some of the words and slang did sound like Carver's soon-to-be ex-wife, and speculation began to mount that perhaps Carver's estranged wife was posting on her husband's account and that she had caused... Grave harm to Carver and his new girlfriend, Kayla Brown. The posts didn't stop, and whoever they were coming from, they seemed to enjoy engaging in arguments with Charlie's friends and family, stating that they knew Carver and Brown well and that people needed to mind their business. Tracing Carver's and Brown's last known cell phone activity, police were led to a 95 acre property of mostly woods in Woodruff, South Carolina where Kayla's cell phone had last pinged. It was land owned by Todd Kohlhepp, age 45, a real estate business owner. The language used in Charlie Carver's recent Facebook posts were compared to Kohlhepp's posts on his own page, and law enforcement noticed similarities in the writing styles and that the Eagles song Hotel California was referenced on both accounts. Using this information, a search warrant was issued and two teams of officers were sent out to investigate Colehep on November 3, 2016. I do find it puzzling that it took law enforcement 65 days to show up at Todd Colehep's house. Missing adults are often handled with less urgency by police than, say, missing children. Adults can voluntarily go missing whenever they want. They can up and leave without telling anyone where they're going. This is completely legal behavior. For that reason, the crucial first 48 hours of an investigation are often lost if law enforcement doesn't find any significant signs of foul play. Whatever the reason for the delay in conducting an interview with the person that Brown last contacted, one team of officers searched the Woodruff land while the other team knocked on the door of Colhep's home 15 miles away from Woodruff in Moore, South Carolina. Standing on the doorstep of his brick house, where he'd lived and worked for 10 years, Todd Colehep listened to the officers' reasons for being there, that they were investigating the disappearance of Kayla Brown and Charles Carver, and that they were led to his property based on cell phone information, the fact that Colehep was the last known person to be in touch with Brown, and, further, what they described as other information. Officers demanded to see Kohlhepp's cell phone, and he cooperated. Meanwhile, while searching the huge property of Kohlhepp's in Woodruff, deputies came across a large, 30-foot-long green storage container and attempted to gain access. The door to the container was secured with several padlocks, and while trying to open it, officers heard what sounded like banging noises coming from inside. They busted the door open and entered the dark container, which was filled with boxes, plastic containers, canned food, and a makeshift bed, where Kayla Brown was found sitting chained by the neck. Unbelievably, she appeared unharmed but stunned, dressed in a black shirt and jeans and wearing glasses. Police and paramedics reassured her that she was okay, they were there to help her, and they began working to free her from her chains with bolt cutters. During the rescue, they asked her where her buddy was. She replied, Charlie, he shot him. Todd Colehep shot him three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of the tractor, locked me down here and I've never seen him again. After freeing Brown from the storage container, police on the scene notified the other team at Colehep's house that they had found Kayla alive. Colehep was sitting in his foyer Handcuffed, being questioned by officers. Upon hearing the news from the Woodruff team, officers informed a calm Colehep that they'd acted on a search warrant and that they have Kayla. Colehep responded, Excuse me? What followed and what happened in the next few days shocked police, shocked a community, and provided answers that family members had been praying for. Next week, We'll dive into Colehep's apprehension, what exactly happened on that remote property in Woodruff, and the subsequent confessions and details that Colehep provided police and the FBI. I'll also shed a little light on Colehep's disturbing childhood, background, and prior criminal history. This has been part one of a two-part episode. Stay tuned next week for the conclusion to Serial Killer Todd Colehep. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. More episodes are coming soon. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadness. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741741.